A pleasure to welcome our first guest back to the program today. Bruce Kidd is a Canadian icon. He's a, an Olympian. He's a track star. He's a former professor of kinesiology at the University of Toronto. And he's here to talk to us about the Olympics, the ones we just saw and the ones that are right around the corner six months away. Bruce Kidd, good morning and welcome back to the show, sir. Well, thank you, Sterling, and good morning to you. It's great to have you back with us, Bruce. Before we move on to Beijing and the article you wrote about the boycotts that's uh, such a, 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 con- a subject of conversation these days, can we take a few minutes, because you and I last talked a couple of weeks before Tokyo began, and now Tokyo, the Olympic portion at least, is over and in our rearview mirror, and I'm very curious as to what your take on the games of Tokyo is. Well, I loved them. Uh, they were joyous. Uh, they were they were exhilarating, uplifting, and uh, I'm relieved uh, that they went so well. I know uh, COVID numbers rose in Tokyo, but within the Olympic bubble, the numbers of those infected was low, and I think the coming together of the world uh, in all of those events in ways that were so. Um, obviously visibly affectionate and supportive of, of, of each other from every different part of the world, I think was uplifting for everyone to see. Uh, as you and I discussed, there are all kinds of big questions about what was going to happen mm-hmm. and, and fears and cross fingers and toes and touches to wood and all of that. And I think overall they worked out better than anybody could have dreamed. Indeed. And, uh, uh, you know, we sent over 800 people in total, athletes, officials, uh, IOC reps, the whole. And of the 800 plus member Canadian delegation, Bruce, there was no uh, incidence of COVID-19 at all. And that's quite something. Well, I think almost everyone uh, who went was double vaccinated. Mm-hmm, yeah. So that was that was an important thing to do. Uh and I think people were very, very careful. I spoke yesterday to one of the track and field coaches, and he said um, it was extraordinarily frustrating, all of the delays and all of the checks. But when he thought about it, he realized that that's what kept them safe. Mm-hmm. So um, the, I suppose that the part that kept uh, coming back to me, and it was impossible to avoid, Bruce, was watching these uh, events, and there were so many to watch, and we'll talk surfing in a couple of minutes. I loved it. Uh, but it's the <laughs> fact that we were it, it, we, they were in all of these absolutely stunning, gorgeous facilities, purpose-built for this particular exposition, and without a soul in the stands. And some of those stands could accommodate 50, 60, 70,000 people. That was, I found, regardless of what the event was and where we were in the program, every time they'd cut away to that wide shot of the stadium with nobody there. I just kept thinking, what an enormous disappointment and what a colossal waste of money. Well, uh, certainly I agree with the disappointment. Uh, It was heart-rendering that people didn't have fans there. Uh, It was heart-rendering for people who'd planned to go. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this is one of the consequences of, of COVID. And I don't think uh, we can blame anybody uh, for the decision to to close it down. I mean, our lives have been totally disrupted. I cycled through the main campus, the St. George campus, 
of the University of Toronto yesterday. Mm-hmm. It's closed. It's like a ghost town. It broke my heart, too. I mean, in many ways, uh, life as we ha- had always known it um, has had to be adjusted. And I think, um, although it was disappointing in the Olympics, it was a reminder of how difficult and how challenging uh, this pandemic has made it for everyone. Indeed. Uh, How about the performance of the Canadian team overall, Bruce? Uh, I think most Canadians were pretty happy. Over the the moon. I mean, it was just, I just loved it. I mean, it was so, so fantastic. People came together in so many ways. Uh, People were in such good spirits. Uh, The the eighth, uh, uh, Damian Warner, uh, the weightlifter from Quebec, uh, the swimmers. I mean, the soccer team. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Every day there was something that that made us jump out of our seats uh, with tears of joy, with... I mean, I've never screamed at the television more uh, mm-hmm. than I did over those two weeks. It was just joyous. Well, you know, as I mentioned surfing a couple of moments ago, only because uh, we had this conversation with a couple of friends the other night. And I was talking about how much I enjoyed the Olympic surfing. And I guess these people didn't watch too much coverage of the games because one of them turned to me and said, surfing's an Olympic sport? Are you kidding? And it actually was fabulous. And then they had skateboarding, for crying out loud, Bruce. These are brand new sports to the... And and some of the Japanese... There was a, a Japanese girl, a 14-year-old Japanese girl, who was just a wizard on a skateboard, hugely entertaining. So again, with younger viewers around the world, these were these uh, events. Uh, I mean, of course, we had all the traditional Olympic events, but some of the newer ones, uh, uh, you think those are brought in specifically to attract younger participants and viewers? Oh, for sure. I think the IOC is is really concerned about uh, you know maintaining its relevance uh, in the the uh, the world's population and addressing all these new sports. I think um, while they they're overall, I, I think that's a big concern. And so this was uh, a, a carefully planned experiment mm-hmm. to expand the demographic. And uh, I I think all the skeptics who actually watched these events must have been uh, persuaded by the athleticism involved. Uh, it's extraordinary. Bruce, one of the things that we talked about uh, a few weeks ago when you were kind enough to join the program before the Olympics was this whole business of expression and Rule 50, which essentially limits athletes from uh, personal forms of expression, particularly in the course of their, quote, Olympic duties. Did you see uh, at the Tokyo Games any expressions of personal sentiment uh, that would have broken Rule 50? Or uh, is, uh, is the, has the IOC become a little more flexible? Well, they did relax the rules, and we saw a, a number of, uh, of demonstrations that were, were allowed in the new rule. Uh, the soccer players who knelt uh, as a protest against racism uh, before every game... Mm-hmm. Uh, th- there were some, there were some uh, expressions. Uh, the hammer thrower who held her name, uh, her arms in a neck, in a, an X, to um, indicate her solidarity with uh, 
with oppressed people was on the podium and that was against uh, the 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 remaining prohibitions of rule 50 okay uh, but the IOC chose not to penalize her um, I I mean my my own f- feeling is that uh, although I've uh, I'm in favor of complete uh, abolition of rule 50 and let athletes express themselves as they want mm-hmm. for, for me this was confirmation of the fact that very few athletes are going to jump up and down and make a protest and uh where they do it they'll do it in a in a in a graceful respectful and, and heartfelt uh way and um and it'll happen quickly uh and then uh people will get on with it so uh if if Tokyo was an experiment, and 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 actually, I, I don't think it was a fair experiment because uh, there were so many restrictions. Mm-hmm. But as as a first go, I think the revised rule worked, and uh, there's nothing to fear about further demonstrations. Bruce Kidd is back with us from Toronto, former Canadian Olympian. Uh, Here's a a, a quote from an article that we're going to talk about in a second. While most athletes are concerned with human rights, an earlier generation learned in 1980 that governments, corporations, and human rights activists are quick to volunteer them for symbolic actions, only to find out they're the only ones who actually sacrifice something important. In 1980, the government of Pierre Trudeau forced Canadian athletes to stay home despite their strong objection and then cut their funds afterwards. The oral history of that bitter experience looms large in the informal discussions about the proposed Beijing boycott currently taking place among Canadian athletes. This is all part of an article entitled Boycotting the Next Olympics in Beijing Will Hurt Athletes. Here's a better idea. The author is Bruce Kidd, and Bruce and I have just been reminiscing uh, about the Tokyo Games, both of us in, uh, articulating a pretty high degree of satisfaction. And just before we move on to this boycott, Bruce, the only disappointing thing uh, in terms of uh, audience response, if you will, here in North America, was the fact that television ratings were down. In the United States, down over 40%, down close to 20% in some time slots here in Canada. What do you make of that? Well, I'm not sure that that's the entire picture, although I haven't done a comprehensive study of this myself. But as I understand it, the streaming ratings, the social media uh, platforms, there were multiple platforms Mm -hmm. uh, showing events. Those other non, uh, for me, an older person, uh, newer newer platforms were set record highs. So... uh, I think the trick is to add up all of the different vehicles of, uh, of, 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 of broadcast of showing the games and, and seeing whether they were above or below previous audiences. All right, well, let's talk now about Beijing. Uh, and you, you, uh, you talk in your article, you mention about the proposed Beijing boycott currently taking place, there's discussions about this taking place among Canadian athletes. Uh, and, I, of course, they're responding 
to the wider discussion, Bruce, about whether or not to boycott Beijing. And as you point out, the athletes are the only ones that are going to be actually affected by this in, in by, by way of not showing up. So what's the better idea? How can we uh, send comfortably send a delegation of Canadian athletes and officials to the Beijing Olympics in six months and feeling comfortable that by doing so, we're not approving of any of Beijing's political activities anywhere on the planet? Well, I think the IOC must expand the space uh, for the free and open exchange of ideas among athletes, officials, and so on uh, in the Olympic precincts in Beijing. In keeping with, and I say this underlying what I'm saying, in keeping with the overarching ambition of the the Olympic Games to provide such a space for people to, to talk to each other, to exchange ideas with each other, not despite their differences, but because of the, their differences. The, the Olympic founder, Pierre de Coubertin, recognized that there are deep differences around the world, mm-hmm. and he tried to use sport to create a movement whereby people would at least get to know each other through uh, sporting and cultural ex- exchanges. Not to make those differences quickly go away, but just to understand them. And that's what, that's the, in, in rhetoric and in policy, that's what the overarching spirit of the, the Olympic Games is. The IOC has not protected that very well in recent years. In Beijing, in 2008, it told athletes to shut up or go home. Mm-hmm. In, in Sochi, when uh, there, was, uh, th- there was the brutal crackdown of, uh, uh, against uh, L- LGBTIQ, um, the, uh, the IOC uh, and a number of National Olympic Committees forced uh, athletes to bite their tongues uh, and, and not say anything. Uh, you know, basically denying athletes the opportunity for the kind of exchange that the whole project uh, uh, creates. What I'm proposing is that is that we pressure the IOC in keeping with the discussion we had before the break around Rule 50 to open up that space, let people freely talk, recognize that Beijing will simply be the host of the Winter Games next year. And the, the purpose of the Games is to bring the world together. Mm-hmm. So let's not shut down the world coming together simply because they're, they're in Beijing. Of course, that begs some very big questions. Uh, will the IOC uh, do that, have the courage to do that? And secondly, will the Chinese government, which we have seen act very repressively, uh, in 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 uh, in Xinjiang, in Hong Kong, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in Tibet, allow that to ha- to happen. But I I think that we need to push the IOC towards that end. And if the and uh, if if the Chinese say if the Chinese say we're not going to allow that, then the IOC could could rightly say let's cancel the games because you are no longer willing to be an Olympic host a proper Olympic host, allowing this kind of exchange to take place. 
Well, and and uh, that therein lies the biggest part of the problem: the the the, the threat. Of retaliation, suppose an, an Olympic athlete uh, in a medal ceremony, and we've we've seen it in the past. Not many examples, Bruce, but you and I have talked about them: the Mexico Games, the protest with yep. the fists in the air, all of that sort of stuff. Suppose somebody does that in Beijing. Now, the government of China is not going to be polite like the government of Japan was uh, to everyone. The government of China would could could quite potentially react severely. And uh, well, again, I think that is the big question. That is the that is the huge question. And I think, I mean, the IOC practices diplomacy all the time. I think the the IOC president Thomas Bach has got to make it very, very clear to China that that cannot that that, that if such a protest goes ahead, they should simply shrug it off and and keep on going. Mm. And if they act in retaliation then the Olympics are over and uh, and China will never be able to compete in the Olympics again. I think that's the kind of discussion that ought to be had. And, and as I pointed out in my article, there is precedent for this uh, uh, from the 1930s when the IOC staged both the Winter and the Summer Olympics in, in Berlin. Right. And the IOC president went to Hitler and said, if these games are going to go ahead... You have to ensure that there that all of the anti-Semitic uh, posters and flags and all of the goon uh, actions of of your uh, your stormtroopers they can never happen because, uh, Mr. Chancellor, when the Olympics is held in a in a place, it's Olympic laws and Olympic values that govern the staging of the games, and that's got to happen in mm-hmm. Berlin. I I want to re-infuse that precedent uh, with, uh, w- with some muscle uh, in these discussions going ahead to Beijing um, and, uh, and, get the China- and get the IOC to pressure the Chinese to act as hosts. It's not their games, it's the Olympic Games. Right. And we can thank them for hosting the games, but we can't allow them to, uh, to carry out their dictatorial practices within the, the games uh, events. Indeed. Now, Bruce, yesterday, final question to you, and we are so grateful for your time again this weekend. Uh, the National Hockey League published its schedule yesterday. The opening game is going to be October 12th. It's a doubleheader. They've also blocked out two weeks in this upcoming season to accommodate the Olympics. However, they have not yet committed to them, neither the owners nor the players. And in fact, the Players Association is advising NHL players who are going to participate in Olympic qualifying games not to because their insurance will not be covered and if they end up getting covid uh, they uh, they will lose money if it affects their ability to play so there's a lot of skepticism yet about uh, again hockey is well for canadians it's it's our olympic highlight think vancouver 2010 but you know uh, this is this is not a done deal by any means and i'm curious a uh, final question how how likely do you think the the Beijing games are to go forward, Bruce? Well, I think you raise good questions that uh, that tighten the stomach muscles on many people around the world. Uh, I'm uh, there are very real questions that need to be answered. Uh, I think that 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 everybody who wants the Olympic Games to go ahead in a proper way should further the decisions that need to be taken, recognizing that. Um, 
that may not be enough. Mm -hmm. So instead of saying it's not going to happen and call everything off at this point, keep the options open and in goodwill try to make them work, recognizing that there are some (laughs) there are some very big players who still have to uh, agree to some very difficult uh, requests. Uh, Our next guest has written a a piece that we caught up here in the Georgia Strait the other day entitled, The New Governor General Should Say No to Illegal and Dangerous Snap Election Call by Trudeau. The author of this piece is the co-founder of Democracy Watch. Always a pleasure to say good morning and welcome back to Duff Conacher. Morning, Duff. Good morning. Uh, I notice here on the the Democracy Watch website that over 15,000 people have signed on to a petition based on the article that you wrote uh, calling upon the Governor General to to turn down the Prime Minister's request for a snap election. How likely, realistically, is that? Well, we'll see. Hopefully she will hold up the, uh, uphold the will of Parliament. Vast majority of MPs voted against having an election at the end of May, including Prime Minister Trudeau. And also uh, all the opposition parties don't think that this is the time for an election during COVID. Mm -hmm. And only 26% of Canadians want an election. So it's a real test of her. Is she going to uphold the will of of Parliament, uh, the will of a a large majority of voters, or is she going to give in to the selfish dictatorial whim? of Prime Minister Trudeau wanting a snap election. Well, I I say she's going to go for Plan B, Duff, even though that doesn't make you happy. And a lot of Canadians, the vast majority of Canadians who aren't interested in this election aren't going to be real happy about it either. It's a pretty naked power grab. Two years in advance of what needs to be the next official legal Canadian election. And you're right, we're still uh, dealing with COVID-19 and we've got a, a surge, a fourth wave going on. Hardly an auspicious time for an election, and yet, as John Horgan proved here in British Columbia last year, Duff, if your timing is everything, and you know, a pandemic could be a a pretty nifty political opportunity if you play your cards right. Uh, yes, but it is—it's an illegal election call. We have a fixed election date law. It was followed by the prime ministers in 2011, 2015, and 2019. So I, what's called a constitutional convention has been created, uh, which is a, a rule based on what prime ministers and governor generals do. Mm-hmm. And uh, the uh, British uh, Supreme Court rejected and said it was illegal for the British prime minister to call an election to uh, shut down parliament for a prorogation back in 2019. Mm-hmm. And said you can't, for no reasonable justification, shut down a parliament. Not when the majority of parliamentarians want to stay open and operate and function. They have a constitutional role. And in our system, we're a parliamentary democracy, uh, not a, a uh, the, the whole system's not run by one person, the prime minister. And uh, as a result, it was illegal for Boris Johnson to shut down Parliament at that time. Mm-hmm. And we're saying to the Governor General, that was a strong precedent, and you should follow it. Right. Because it was the right thing to do. Don't allow this abuse of power. So she has the discretion to say no, and uh, hopefully she will do her job properly, uphold the, the will of the vast majority of MPs, 
and the majority of Parliament, and also uphold the will of the large majority of voters, mm-hmm. and and not give in to him, even though he handpicked her through a process that he controlled. Right, exactly. Uh, so hopefully she'll be a guardian of our democracy instead of a lapdog for the prime minister. Well, okay. The again, uh, and and uh, hopefully, and and you know, wishful thinking uh, aside, I don't think it's going to happen. So uh, you're you're the lawyer in this conversation, Mr. Conacher. Are there any? Uh, is there a fallback position if the governor general does the bidding of the prime minister and acquiesces to the request for the dissolution of parliament? Is there any recourse that Canadian voters? have once that permission has been given by the GG? Well, we're talking with lawyers now about uh, not trying to stop the election, because that's really hard to do, but at least to go into court and try and get a ruling that the election call was illegal. And uh, that would at least stop this from happening in the future and also get a ruling if Trudeau happens and the Liberals happen to win the election a ruling that the prime minister had uh, violated the law to to win that election. Mm-hmm. And and then everyone will be able to say, well, we have a, a prime minister who has violated the law. Not that we can't say that already, given that he's violated the, the key government ethics law that we have, uh, which is another key law protecting our democracy. And he's violated, been found guilty of violating that uh, a couple of times already, as have his... Uh, a, a few of his cabinet ministers. Um, he seems to think that no rules apply to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you know, he's violating the ethics law, which is fundamental to protecting our democracy. And he seems to have no problem with that. Uh, and, and also seems to have no problem from all the rumors about violating the fixed election date law. So uh, that will be at least what we'll be able to do. It would be very difficult to stop the election. Right. Of, of course, people can vote as they did in the last election and not give him the majority that he clearly seems to be selfishly seeking. Well, that's what it's all about. You can remember, you're, you're a, a, enough of a political wonk that I'm sure this is right, still quite, somewhat fresh in your memory. And I'm going back maybe 20 years now, Duff, to a meeting at, of NATO uh, in Brussels. And Jean Chrétien, then Canadian Prime Minister, is having a chat with then-President Bill Clinton. And what they don't realize is the mic that's between them is open. And Chrétien is talking about, to, to Clinton, is saying things like, well, you know, the uh, leader of a minority government, or I'm sorry, of a majority government in Canada, that person, the prime minister, actually has more personal executive power than the president of the United States. And Clinton went, no. And and Kretzian went on and on. You remember this conversation. So a, a Canadian leader of a majority government does have an incredible amount of power. And clearly, that's what Mr. Trudeau is after. If he is denied this by the voters and returned with a a minority, uh, it will have been a very, very expensive exercise. And speaking of that, Duff, Elections Canada has said because we're going to be conducting this election during a pandemic, the cost of the election is going to be at least $100 million more than it would have been conducted under, relatively speaking, normal circumstances. Yes, $600 million for a selfish uh, attempt by the Prime Minister to get out of the minority government situation, in part because he doesn't like being held accountable by the majority of MPs who are opposition in terms of investigating 
uh, wrongdoing in ethics and all sorts of other areas. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, that's a very expensive uh, proposition, that's for sure. It is. Uh, and also, we won't even know the election results uh, on election night because uh, polls indicate about one-third of voters will be voting by mail-in ballot. So, it's uh, and, and Elections Canada has never done this. The opposition, the federal parties have never run an election in, during COVID. Mm-hmm. I'm expecting ton, tons of problems like we had in Newfoundland and Labrador, which right. led to the lowest voter turnout ever in that uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, Duff Conacher back with us now. Uh, Duff, the, the, uh, the, the petition was joined by thousands of Canadians very quickly. Were you surprised at that? Uh, no, because uh, all of the opposition parties are against having an election and at the end of May uh, the vote in the House of Commons in a resolution against holding an election now during COVID was 327 to 1 Mm -hmm. Uh, and the Prime Minister voted for that resolution as well Uh, now he is uh, here just uh, over a couple of months later saying uh, according to all rumors that he wants a snap election Mm -hmm. which is uh, part of the the problem it's uh, hypocritical for him to be doing this, given that he voted against holding an election just uh, a couple of months ago, along with, again, 327 MPs, only one voted against, saying we should have an election. 327 said we shouldn't. Right. And that's the will of Parliament, along with the opposition parties not wanting an election now, and they make up the majority of Parliament. And yet, Duff, was, since that since that vote has taken place, the Prime Minister and many of his uh, senior cabinet ministers as well have fanned out across the country, uh, uh, making uh, funding announcements to the tunes of, of, of many, many billions of dollars, really in full-on pre-election campaign mode. And of course, all on taxpayer dollars. They're campaigning on taxpayer dollars. But nonetheless, uh, making promise after promise and huge dollar promises. Does the fact that they're being as cavalier with Canadian dollars uh, and and large amounts of Canadian dollars uh, make you nervous at all? Well, it it is a concern. Uh, The Liberals broke their promise that they made in 2015 to restrict government advertising leading up to an election. Mm -hmm. They didn't put in place the the full rules and independent enforcement of that, like that we have, for example, in Ontario, where the Auditor General can review advertising all the time, including leading up to an election, and and uh, stop it if it's too partisan mm-hmm. and really is not informing voters, but is really just trying to promote the ruling party. The Liberals broke that promise. We not only need that in place, but we should have a review possible of these kind of uh, announcements leading up to a snap election call. Uh, the Auditor General should be able to look at them as well and say, well, you know, you're not announcing spending, you're announcing a promise. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to announce a promise, then call an election, and then you can be announcing your promises. But uh, otherwise, you know, this is just campaigning before the campaign period. It's unfair. And... uh, should not be allowed. And there's so and, much of it, Duff, that, that the parliamentary budget officer has said flat out it's going to be absolutely impossible to cost out uh, any of this in, in a timely fashion uh, for Canadians. Another, another problem with a snap election call, mm-hmm. because the, that, that process was put in place, uh, and it was a good change to allow this independent officer to uh, do an audit and issue a report saying to voters... This is what each party's promises are going to cost. Absolutely, the election. Mm-hmm. But he can't. 
he, he has said, I won't be able to do that now because in a snap election, the parties are getting together their platforms. You know, they didn't know this was going to happen. Platforms likely won't come out until mid-late election for some of the parties. And that doesn't give the parliamentary budget officer the time to do the analysis so that voters won't have that information mm-hmm. when they go into election. So it, it's an unfair election in every way as well. Unfair to voters as well who might want to run, run as a candidate and we're planning their lives around the October uh, 2023 election time period to, to be able to create the uh, time and space in their lives to run as a candidate. Right. And, uh, and even volunteering. Um, you know, lots of people go on holiday the last uh, part of, of the summer at some point, and uh, the Prime Minister's calling election, kind of taking advantage of that. You know, lots of people are really busy with their kids way past Labor Day, getting them set up for school. Mm-hmm. And, and all of a sudden, voting day will be happening. So it's just, I mean, it's just such a bad timing. It's a, a legal snap election call, dishonest by the Prime Minister because he voted against it at the end of May. Right. And unfair and will likely be dangerous as well given the wave of COVID, COVID right. sweeping the country. I'm sitting here looking at a map of the country on the Century 21 website, and I'm looking at the 10 most expensive areas in Canada. Number one, Montreal downtown. Number two, Vancouver downtown. Number three, Vancouver west side. Number four, Vancouver. Number five, West Vancouver, number nine, Vancouver East Side, number 10, North Vancouver. Yes, six of the 10 most expensive areas in which to live in the entire country are right here in the Lower Mainland. We're talking, of course, about the new survey, the fifth annual price per square foot of residential property survey conducted by Century 21. Here to talk about it, Century 21 Canada's Executive Vice President, Brian Rushton. Mr. Rushton, Brian, good morning. Welcome. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us, Brian. And uh, no accident that six of the top ten most expensive spots to buy a house in Canada happen to be right here on our doorstep. This hasn't changed much in the past several years at all, has it? Not at all. Vancouver continues to be a uh, a, a destination where people want to be and uh, and live, obviously. Talk to us about per square foot, though, Brian. I mean, this is really important stuff because it really gives the the prospective homeowner or anyone an opportunity to identify, and I guess some would say how absurd prices have become per square foot. Can we talk about what it costs per square foot to live in this corner of Canada? Yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty substantial as the numbers support. And uh, I think that when you look at areas for instance, you mentioned the, the most expensive ones, Vancouver downtown. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about $1,300 plus per square foot, uh, that's a pretty significant number. And obviously, that's uh, that's been increasing consistently over the five years that we've been doing this particular survey. And as you know, this uh, actually measures the first six months of each of those five years. Uh, and even though sometimes the prices adjust a little bit in July and August, uh, they certainly pick up again in the fall. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's been a trend that's been continuing and will probably continue into the future. Brian, what does that 1300 bucks per square foot for a downtown Vancouver condo represent in terms of what it cost a year ago? What's the percentage increase year over year? The, uh, the Vancouver downtown condo, I'm just looking at the numbers here, Sterling, so I can give you the exact number. Uh, detached downtown. Um, it's up by about 
9%, almost 10%. Okay. Right. Now, that's a pretty typical gain for Vancouver downtown real estate, isn't it, Brian? Let's talk about some of the gains around Vancouver. Now, this is where it gets really astonishing. Let's talk about Chilliwack, for crying out loud. Yeah, very significant in Chilliwack. And I think that uh, because of what's taken place, the downtown core and the lower mainland, we're driving a lot of consumers out to the outlying markets. Yep. Chilliwack, in this particular case, in the detached house, uh, increased over 40% in the last 12 months, which mm-hmm. is considerable. And uh, townhouse in the same marketplace increased 27 and condo about uh, almost 30% as well. So you see significant trends for people moving outside of the downtown core. Right, and the pandemic, if anything, sort of exacerbated that trend, didn't it, Brian? Because all of a sudden, you were not just looking at an economic decision to move to a more affordable area. You were also looking at, a, a, a you could make a decision that you could connect economically and then look forward to maybe uh, enjoying living in Chilliwack and not having to drive to downtown Vancouver every day because work from home allows for a different lifestyle. And I'm sure that over the course of the last year, many people uh, here in the Lower Mainland have looked at places like Chilliwack and those outlying areas as being really the ticket. Yeah, for sure. And I think that we've seen that trend all across the country. Uh, uh, certainly couples living in, uh, living in a smaller confined space in a condo, potentially even having a couple of children there and then being forced to work from home for the past 16 months has caused some major issues from a family point of view, obviously. And uh, I think you're right. You're moving out to Chilliwack, and even though the prices have increased substantially, uh, they can get more dollar, more bang for their buck, so to speak, uh, in that marketplace and a little more space. Uh, to bring up their family and to work from home as well. That's right. And and we see this, again, expanding even beyond the direct lower mainland. I mean, Chilliwack's about as far away as you can get here is still in college self being in the lower mainland, Fraser Valley. Um, and that you're also seeing this ripple effect carry right on up through the province. For, for example, Kelowna prices are also through the roof again, aren't they? Kelowna have increased again over 30% on detached homes. And uh, yeah, the same thing. We're seeing that through the Okanagan. We're seeing that in parts of the uh, the upper island, the Nanaimo North. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seeing that in the Sunshine Coast. I mean, it's it's uh, it's evident everywhere in the province and, uh, and certainly across the country as well. Uh, how about Victoria? Uh, always a popular spot and a lot of changing demographics over there in the last few years and certainly no lowering of house prices. What's the story of the, the provincial capital in, in the latest survey, Brian? Yeah, Victoria is a little more modest than Vancouver uh, from a price increase point of view. It's increased just over 14% for detached and uh, just over 9% for townhouse and about seven, just over 7% for condo. So it's a little more modest. I think the uh, the increase there, and of course, it's a little more remote. Uh, it hasn't reached, actually, it doesn't have the benefit of being able to drive quickly from Chilliwack into, into Vancouver. Right. I think that's been a substantial factor as well. 
I'm wondering about activity levels, because there was a bit of a rush, a bit of pent-up demand. We were all able to pretty quickly identify that, and we saw uh, a kind of a return to the insanity of a couple of years ago, uh, a, a few months ago here, with bidding wars and all of that sort of stuff. That appears to have completely subsided, Brian. Things have smoothed out and leveled off quite a bit. Why do you think that happened, and, and, and the leveling effect occurred as quickly as it did? Yeah, I think that, uh, and I think you're probably going to see that come back in September once we get through Labor Day. Uh, I believe there's still a pent-up demand in the marketplace. And, of course, we, we in the past 16 months, have not uh, enjoyed immigration like we have in the past either. And, of course, as you know, Vancouver is very very much an immigration destination. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Pardon me. So the uh, I think you're going to see that happen again. I think the uh, certainly uh, when we were into March of last year, uh, when the pandemic first broke, uh, March, April were kind of a couple of months where we didn't necessarily know what was going to take place in the marketplace. That's right. Uh, but May, May certainly, t- the, the lights turned back on, and and as you say, the uh, the market continued to be uh, flourish, uh, not only flourish but have tremendous activity in it from a multiple offer position. I think that we're not through that yet. I think the uh, there's still going to be some. Uh, some flurry of activity in the fall market. We're looking forward to that all across Canada. And when I say looking forward to it, there's some frustration with that as well because of multiple offer situations. You have disappointments by by purchasers who are trying to get into the marketplace and, and offers being rejected. However, uh, and when, when we get through uh, what we're in or what the new abnormal is going to be here after the pandemic, right. I think when immigration opens up again, I think we're going to be back into a scenario where there's going to be a higher demand for real estate. And so, again, here we are at roughly the halfway point in the year. Your survey, the National Price Per Square Foot Survey, represents uh, the activity between the first six months of this year and stacks them up against the previous five years. So based on all of that data and experience, Brian, uh, a forecast for the second half of 2021. I think you're going to see the, uh, as you said earlier, the, it's leveled off a bit uh, in July and August, which typically it happens that way every year. Uh, once we get back into school, back into Labor Day, uh, uh, yes, we potentially are have an election, an election right around the corner. Sometimes that slows things up a little bit mm-hmm. as well. But I, I don't see anything slowing us down right now. I think the uh, the market con- markets continue to be buoyant across the country. Uh, the demand for real estate has never been higher. Uh, homeownership is uh, is at a level where people want to be involved and, and own and have, have the amenities around them. Uh, certainly not the crystal ball. I, I'm always careful with the crystal ball, but uh, it, all indicators are pointing to increased activity this fall well into 2022. Clint Wright is joining us now. Mr. Wright is the CEO of the Vancouver Aquarium and their website, Friends, is absolutely tickled to say 65,000 amazing animals with a few new additions are excited to welcome you back. It's reopening Monday. Clint Wright, welcome back and good morning. Uh, Good morning, Sterling. Yeah, very exciting day. It is indeed. And you and I have had some interesting conversations since this pandemic began, Clint, and a lot of them were pretty fingernails uh, hanging on, kind of, oh my gosh, we hope to make this. And we did. Uh, Lots of changes at the Vancouver Aquarium in the last uh, 18 months, including an ownership change. Yeah, you've you've got that spot on. I mean, uh, back in the beginning of this year, uh, 
we're putting a brave face on it, but we were facing, you know, the end of the aquarium, end of the 64 years of, of, of an iconic uh, attraction doing important conservation research, education work. And, uh, but we just, we're not making money. We were just like everybody else. The, the, the pandemic uh, hit us hard and um, we were spending close to a million dollars a month. That's right. And it was just not uh, not working. So, yeah, April, um, fortunately, the community came out, of course, and bought everything. You know, and the white caps helped us. We mm-hmm. had face masks being sold. The government gave us some money. Um, but it just wasn't enough to keep going. But it did. What it did do is give us that um, bridge, if you like, um, to April 14th, which is when Hershen were able to come in and uh, take over ownership of the aquarium, uh, bringing, uh, you know, fi- financial stability um, operational know-how and and and, uh, and uh, the great thing, of course, is that they had aquariums already. They mm-hmm. were already world-class aquariums. So um, it's, I mean, it's been a fantastic result, and uh, and here we are, getting ready to open. It's brilliant. And and uh, Clint, as well, there there's been some renovation work up uh, uh, also as part of the build-up to the reopening. Tell us about that. That's right. We've um, uh, because for a number of reasons we haven't been able to do um, a, a lot of maintenance. Obviously, trying to save money, uh, and uh, so we put a lot of work into um, renovating the habitats. Almost every aspect of the aquarium has been touched. Uh, I mean, the whole thing's had a lick of paint, but more than that, uh, some of the habitats have been renovated. Um, we have some new exhibits. We've got a new 4D movie coming in. Um, uh, yeah, new plantings in the Amazon. Uh, all the things that the team here have been wanting for so long, but the resources were not there. Um, you know, it's <laughs> just been running around full of excitement. It's like, it's like Christmas has come, and um, we've been able to really make the aquarium get it back to what it, it back to its heyday. Get it back to, to what it looked like before a, a world class aquarium. Well, Clint, I must tell you, given the fact that you and I have had some pretty tense conversations over the past year and a half, I can detect the excitement in your voice. It's palpable and it's absolutely <laughs> lovely. I'm a scuba diver and learned very early on diving in local waters about the giant Pacific octopus and how people literally divers from all over the planet come to this part of the world to experience contact with these creatures. And that's what this new 4D movie is all about, the giant Pacific octopus, right? Well, it's a, yeah, so it's about octopus from all over the world. And uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's Blue Planet, too, so BBC. I mean, of course, they make some of the best documentaries in the world. And uh, it's just a stunning imagery, but it's, it's done in a fun way. So it's in our 4D theatre. You know, we've got, I won't spoil the surprises, but there's, there's effects through it. Oh, uh, it's okay. 3D. It's, uh, you might get a little wet. You might get a little uh, surprises along the way. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fun thing. It's, 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 it's a different pace in the aquarium. We have some, some serious topics. We have some fun things and, uh, you know, and some and things where you just laugh out loud. And then the 4D theater is one of those ones where, it, you, you know, you just, it's just thoroughly enjoyable. And, there were things in there that even I didn't know about octopus, so lots to learn too. Indeed, and I've had I've had a couple of encounters uh, over the years, and they're just they're absolutely incredible. By the way, you've got a marine mammal rescue exhibit. This is uh, the aquarium, of course, is where people end up taking what they think are abandoned seal pups from local beaches, and and every spring, particularly, it happens as regularly as clockwork. Uh, is the volume still the same, or are people learning that? Not necessarily. Those pups on the beaches aren't necessarily actually abandoned. Mum's just out looking for supper. Yeah, fantastic point, the, the Sterling. And it's um, 
unfortunately, there are still mothers out there that that are, that are, that are new mothers uh, that have problems. So we're still getting a lot of animals. So we still get, you know, uh, I don't don't know how many it is in there right now. It's over eighty, I think. So My. eighty to one hundred and fifty every year. Um, and it's a variety of animals, but the majority are harbor seals. And you're exactly right. Our messages are getting out thank, thanks to, um, you know, uh, on-site work, but also radio shows like this where mm-hmm. the, the, the message gets out. So it's, okay, first thing you do is just observe. If you think you might be in trouble, then please call, please call the, the, the hotline. And, and so uh, it's out there. I think a lot of, uh, of our BC residents know that now. But unfortunately, there are still a lot of animals that need help um, and a few of them don't make it through. The majority of them are released. Mm-hmm. And then there's, there's a few that uh, can't be released, of course. And, and uh, we're able to, if DFO, and they're the ones that make the decision, if DFO decides that they can't be released back into the wild because they wouldn't survive or would perhaps pose a risk for, for the wild populations, then for a few we're able to provide a long-term safe home here at the aquarium. And, that, and that's part of our new exhibits uh, on, on site. It actually talks about the... The 64 years of rescuing marine mammals along the coast, everything from killer whales to, to seals. Indeed. Uh, talk to us a little bit, Clint, about what to expect when we go to the aquarium. For example, most public attractions now in Metro Vancouver don't sell tickets. They require you to purchase your ticket online before you show up. Will be the, that be the deal at the aquarium yeah. effective Monday as well? Yes, that's, uh, that's, that's exactly right, again. Um, the... Um, uh, last year, we, we sort of tested it uh, during that short period of time that we're open. And to be honest, most aquariums, uh, museums uh, are using this system now because what it allows us to do is get an accurate forecast of when people are coming and how many people are going to be in the building right. at what time. And so we're open from 9.30 to, to 5.30 every day. And we're asking everybody who's coming to the aquarium, that includes members too, um, to, to, to go to our website, to vanaqua.org, and book your tickets online. You'll be able to book a specific day and a specific date and time, mm-hmm. um, and then you come at that time. And what that does, because we're on a reduced capacity because of the COVID, we're still not fully open to full capacity. We right. typically do five, 6,000 people on a day like today. We'll be down at about 2,500 people, so half capacity. But we need to know when those people are coming. So, um, yeah, so encouraging everybody to do that. It, it worked well last summer, and uh, it seems to be working well now. We have a members' day uh, today, first one, just members, ah. and tomorrow, just members. And uh, so anybody's a member can can book a ticket online. And already, I think I'm um, just looking. At, and this is the advantage of having <laughs> online ticketing. I'm, I'm looking and seeing that there's 2,456 members coming in today. So uh, we're already pretty much booked. you're maxed out. Yeah, all, just about. So, um, uh, yeah, and I, it's, it's, it's helpful in a number of ways. So, um, yeah, that, that's the new way of coming into the aquarium. But and how about, uh, how about ticket sales as we look to Monday's reopening and the days following? Are, are, are we getting brisk? Are people paying attention and uh, snapping them up already, Clint? They are indeed. I think, uh, yeah, I don't have those numbers directly to hand, but, yeah, it's... Um, there's still quite a few spots, but uh, the sooner you the sooner you book, obviously, the more more likely you are to be guaranteed. And certainly, your favorite time is uh, the favorite times that people want to come because people like to spend a long time you sure. know, in the morning and 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 be there during the middle of the day. So, um, yeah. I would advise everybody who's thinking of coming and don't be disappointed and, and do that. But the other thing we're asking is that everybody that comes uh, uh, 12 and over, if you're not fully vaccinated, you, you, uh, we're asking you to wear a mask 
all the staff will be wearing masks. Right. We've got increased cleaning. Uh, we need to be sensible. We need to be make sure that we're doing uh, everything we can to keep everybody safe. And uh, we're going one step at a time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think French fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.